This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, November the 11th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, we have our weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joey Gupta. Today we discuss the fallout from this week's health minister's meeting. Canada's foreign affairs minister is warning businesses against deepening their ties with China. We'll share our thoughts on that story. And we explore some controversy surrounding Netflix's newest season of The Crown. Later in the show, Michael McNeely will review a film about World War II in honor of Remembrance Day. And we'll also catch up with some disability advocates in New Brunswick to talk more about the insurance that people with disabilities will be paid minimum wage if they are employed in that province. But let's begin with our top story of the day, and it's a look at the health situation going on across the country. Canada's top doctor shared some analysis of the respiratory illnesses spiking across the country. Dr. Teresa Tam says there are numbers of vi- there are a number of viruses flowing around. So not only have the COVID-19 not done with us, even though we're fatigued, uh, we're seeing the influenza really rising quite steeply right now. It's going to be different in different parts of the country, but in general, that's just beginning to climb. And then RSV that began a little while ago is still at a very high level. Dr. Tam notes that all those viruses are at different stage of their curve. COVID is, you know, peaking and may have plateaus and may be coming down in certain areas of the country. RSV had made an early start and is increasing and still at a high level. Influenza is just beginning and just accelerating. So there's a dynamic interplay with these viruses. Let's talk about one of the shortages going on right now in regards to children's Tylenol and other painkillers. Canadian hospitals are expecting an emergency shipment of children's medications. Adam Burns has the latest. Health Canada says special imports of ibuprofen from the U.S. are awaiting distribution, while acetaminophen imports from Australia are imminent. The agency did not disclose how much was expected or how stock will be distributed, but it promises fair distribution of supply across Canada. The extraordinary measures follow a months-long shortage of children's pain and fever medication. Observers point to a complex web of factors driving demand, limiting supply, and complicating any attempt at a quick fix. Adam Burns, the Canadian Press. And let's get to a regional story about healthcare. Manitoba is promising $200 million to ease the strain on their healthcare system. That includes hiring approximately 2,000 frontline workers. Dr. Candice Bradshaw, the president of Doctors Manitoba, says the group is confident the new measures will help retain professionals. We are encouraged to see so many supports for nurses and other healthcare professionals today because we have been concerned about our colleagues and about the shortages, the workload pressures that they are facing as well. 
Dr. Bradshaw says the province needs more than 350 doctors to keep up with demands on the health care system. And we'll talk a little bit more about health care on the news panel with Michelle and Joita in about 10 minutes time. But let's get to one more news story this morning. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is on his way overseas for a flurry of international meetings across four countries, starting in Cambodia. Emily Javesky has the agenda. Trudeau is due in Cambodia's capital for a leaders' meeting at the Association of Southeast Asian Nations Summit. Experts say sporadic Canadian engagement with ASEAN has led to skepticism from the organization about the prospects for a trade deal with the bloc of 10 countries in the region. Trudeau is also set to attend the G20 in Indonesia before attending gatherings in Thailand and Tunisia. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, who's expected to reveal the long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy within the month, will also be on the trip. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Thursday, we asked you, what is your level of interest in the Emergencies Act inquiry? I was extremely encouraged by these results. 70% of you said very, 15% of you said somewhat, and 15% of you said not at all. We had Terry tweet in, no interest. It should have been done weeks earlier. Those poor people in Ottawa who had to live with it. Again, very encouraged to see that uh, 70% of you said I'm very interested in the goings-on of the Emergencies Act. It's very affirming because, as you know, I'm mostly playing sound and stories from the Emergencies Act every single day for you. So maybe I'm kind of preaching to my choir, call you the Brownies, the Disciples of Brown, my Brown cult. I think the Brownies, that's that's what we'll call the fan club, the Brownies. Doesn't quite have a great ring to it. Today's daily poll is a little bit more serious. And just before we ask you the question, I do want to remind you that today's edition of Now with Dave Brown, if you're watching live this morning, is going to be a little bit different. We're only going to be broadcasting the first hour live this morning. At 10 a.m. today, we'll be switching over to a simulcast that will be live described of the CBC's Remembrance Day 2022 broadcast from the National War Memorial in Ottawa. So at 10 a.m. this morning, we will switch over on AMI-tv to that coverage. There will still be a second hour of the show later on in the day via repeat as well as via the podcast, but we felt it was really important to share the ceremony and give you that live described coverage of what's going on in Ottawa at the National War Memorial because it's an important day. Remembrance Day can be marked in a lot of different ways. The one thing that I always think about is just the importance of people who serve both in wars past but both in days present as well. It was something that I got on about a few years ago on Remembrance Day on November the 11th in 2020 that we sometimes forget that the military and people who serve are oftentimes continuing to deal with crises in real time domestically. When we saw the collapse of several long-term care homes in Quebec during the COVID-19 pandemic, the people we sent in were the military. They were the folks who ran towards the danger. As other folks move away from the danger, we ask military service people to run towards it. Certainly in Atlantic Canada, even just a few weeks ago, we had hundreds of service people deployed to the region to help deal with that natural disaster and serve people. So service is not just something that is a 
long forgotten remembrance of battles fought in a different place at a different time. It's the way in which you're served perpetually and remembering those who've made sacrifices for their families and their friends. They sacrificed their tomorrows so we could have our todays. That's to me what Remembrance Day is all about. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Today I'm asking you a simple question without any options. I want you to write in and share your thoughts more fully. How do you mark Remembrance Day? How do you mark Remembrance Day? I want to give the first opportunity to answer this question to Alex Smythe. Alex, how do you mark Remembrance Day? Yeah, so there's typically a few different ways I I like to go about it. Um, You know, first off, I I typically try to uh, get myself a poppy, give a small donation. Unfortunately, I don't have one this year. It's just uh, based on my timing and my my schedule. I haven't really been out and about since I've I've gotten back and haven't uh, had a chance to to pick one up. But uh, one thing that I always typically like to do and uh, the folks at home are going to be able to do so at uh, 10 a.m. is is check out CBC's coverage of Remembrance Day ceremonies. They always find it very powerful, very uh, poignant, very in, uh, insightful, um, and they tend to cover it through across the country and and abroad as well. And every every year now, since um, uh, a few years ago, when I, I had the chance to go and visit Juno Beach, I I'm always reminded of my visit there, the kind of the impact, the the uh, the emotions, the feelings that I had visiting Juno Beach, seeing the the markers that were there to represent the the soldiers who died on that beach, you know, during World War Two. And so I always like to take a couple minutes, reflect, think about it, think about what people have sacrificed for our country. Uh, you made a great point earlier about people still serving and still uh, putting themselves at risk for the protection and safety of, of Canada and its citizens. So I think it's it's always very important to not only remember those who have served, but continue to serve and, and who served going forward. So uh, definitely trying to find as much coverage as I can is it's really, uh, really important and taking some time for myself to do some own internal reflection. We're very lucky today to be joined by Grace Scofield, who's filling in for Eliza Rocco. Grace, it's nice to have you back on board, and I'm sorry that I'm hitting you with such a somber daily poll question, but how do you typically mark Remembrance Day? It usually has to do with being mindful throughout the day um, and the days leading up to it. Honestly, as soon as the poppy goes on, every time I put on my jacket or whenever I'm wearing my poppy, I'm very mindful of what the day means. It also involves having conversations with family and friends and reminding ourselves of our country's history and of our veterans' history. And it's wearing a poppy and, again, just being respectful and being mindful throughout the entire day. Absolutely. And there's lots of ways to market, including watching that broadcast that we'll have later on today. But there's also plenty of small ceremonies going on across the country uh, at various legions, smaller processions. There's a lot of ways to participate today, and it's certainly worth your while to do so. Grace, thank you for your thoughts on that one. I do want to hear from you at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook or at Accessible Media on Twitter. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather update. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, there's rain or snow this morning, then a mix of sun and clouds with possible showers in the afternoon. There is a special weather statement in effect with heavy rain expected this uh, this weekend. The high there is six. Over to Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's mainly sunny 
And a special weather statement is in effect as well, with up to 60 millimeters of rain is expected tonight. The high is 18. In Montreal, Quebec, it's sunny with increasing cloudiness, and a rainfall warning is in effect with up to 60 millimeters expected tonight. The high is 18. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's mainly sunny in the morning, but periods of rain in the afternoon, and the high is 18. Over here to Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds with rain coming later. Up to 10 millimeters is expected. 15 is the high. To Thunder Bay, Ontario, snow falling and up to 2 centimeters is expected. The high is minus 1. Winnipeg, Manitoba, there's snow this morning, then cloudy in the afternoon with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of minus 5. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's mainly sunny, a high of minus 14, but there is a wind chill this morning for it to feel like minus 28. In Calgary, Alberta, it's sunny and a high of minus 2. Edmonton, Alberta, sunny as well, but minus 9 is the high. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, there's snow flurries today with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of minus 6. Over to Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or rain and a high of 6. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of rain and 7  is the high. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, we kick off the weekly news panel and discuss the fallouts from this week's health ministers meetings in British Columbia. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's a Friday edition of Now with Dave Brown, which means that we fire up the weekly news panel. We power things up by welcoming into the show Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuaig. Hey, Joita, how are you? Hey, Dave. Good morning. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm well. And Michelle, how are you? Fine, guys. I'm glad to hear you're both well. I think I think we're all bouncing back. I think we're all bouncing back after fighting off these uh, respiratory illnesses that are flowing around. Oh, so boy. lots of yeah. energy today. We've all had our turn, I think, in we, the past month. I've, I've had my turn twice, so I'm done. I'm oh, officially done. Good. Although I guess there's three things going around. So influenza's next, I suppose. Uh, guys, speaking of our own health, let's talk more broadly about health care. A meeting with Canada's health ministers has ended with no agreement after the federal government pulled out. The walkout was prompted after the premier released a statement during the meetings. The statements repeated a call for the federal government to fund 35% of healthcare spending, up from 22%. Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos called the statement interference. Premiers are forcing my colleagues to speak only of one thing, and one thing only, money. All that premiers keep saying is that they want an unconditional increase in the Canada health transfer sent to their finance ministers. Duclos says there was still progress made during negotiations, even if there was not a formal agreement. That's not going to happen the same way we were expecting it would happen today. But the good news is, again, that we all agree on the priorities. If the premiers didn't impose marching orders on my colleagues, health ministers, we would all, we'd all be together today and recognize the plan and the work ahead. 
BC Health Minister Adrian Dick says he understands the frustration from Duclos. Fair enough. They didn't uh, like that the premiers reiterated their position on the Canada health transfer. That's entirely fair of the federal government to do in their expression, but I think it's disappointing. I'm not sure it sends the best message. Dick says that more cooperation is needed between levels of government if the healthcare system is going to be revitalized. To succeed in the future, to build the healthcare system we need, we need the federal government to increase its role and support for public healthcare and not, as has been happening for too, too long, diminish that role. We need the spirit that we came together with under COVID-19 to be the spirit that we come together with in, uh, in addressing the issues around the Canada health transfer. Michelle, let's start here. Obviously, it would have been nice to come out of this with a deal, but should we really be surprised that increasing federal health transfer from 22% to 35% was not going to get done at a two-day conference? I mean, no. Of course, it wouldn't be done that quickly, but this is hardly a new issue, right? This is something that's been coming up for quite a long time. It was the central issue when all the premiers gathered in British Columbia earlier this year. Uh, So I think that the... The kind of acrimonious tone jumped out at me, given the fact that this is ex- not exactly a new issue or, or a new request that's been coming Duclos' way. Uh, so the kind of combative tone that sprang up uh, did surprise me, even if the fact that the, the, there was no active resolution. And I might have expected to see a little bit more progress made towards <clears throat> closing that gap. It's a huge one. 13% is a massive, massive gap in terms of those negotiations. Uh, but we don't have any sense that we're any closer to a deal and uh, I, I was I was a little bit surprised at the way this actually broke down, especially given the fact that not discussing the money uh, would be kind of beside the point. It, mm. would be the, it would be the elephant in the room. And I really don't see how one could have discussions around the health file in Canada without having that conversation. Yeah, it did seem like after day one, there was some common ground about some of the strings attached the federal government was yeah. talking about. And then the whole thing fell apart on day two. Joita, was this an, as an example of perhaps the expectations were too high going into this conference? Um, it's hard to say what was expected by whom. Often these conferences come after months of preparation. It's not that they get together on day one and ever have a resolution on day two or day three. You know, there's been behind the scenes conversations taking place presumably for months before this conference. And the hope was that there would have been an opportunity to ink a deal, sign the dotted line, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, it didn't happen. Michelle pointed out the combative tone and the fact that things, uh, communications clearly broke down. Um, and so I'm a bit perplexed as to what was actually agreed to ahead of time, if anything was actually agreed to ahead of time. You get the sense from hearing Duclos that um, there might have been some kind of an agreement in place, but either the provinces backed out or introduced new things, having received marching orders from the premier that had not been discussed prior to the conference. So it's really unclear as to when and how the uh, discussions broke down in the spect- in the spectacular and public fashion that they did. But there is a, lo- a large gap between 22% and 35%. And it didn't even seem as though there was any effort being made to meet in the middle. So there was no negotiation happening. There was no, you know, say sentiment that we couldn't get to agree on this today, but, you know, let's give it another day or two and see if we can come meet in the middle. You didn't really get a lot of that. You saw a very significant breakdown and a very acrimonious tone, which is, I suspect, the last thing that Canadians need, given how 
deeply embattled our healthcare workers are and how much strain the healthcare system is under, especially in light of the mm. last two years in COVID-19. To call a press release interference, <clears throat> I think, is like a little bit a little bit much from the federal health minister. That said, I, I imagine it had to be more than just the press release that got released in the middle of the day on Tuesday that had this all fall <coughs> apart. I do wonder at what point these health ministers, this is speculation, but I do wonder at what point these health ministers said, we can't agree to anything while we're here unless you agree to 35%. And this comes from the top. And at that point, I would say, okay, that may be interference because now we're not bargaining in good faith. We're just making demands. But what, Michelle, what do you make of the federal health minister calling the premiers releasing uh, a a press release interference? Interference seems a I, a bit strong, and yet at the same time, I will say that I can see where he's coming from in terms of the optics. I think about this in terms of a, if a meeting were taking place at a less exalted workplace, perhaps. <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if there was a meeting going on and someone busted out of the meeting and released details about it way in advance, the higher-ups would not be pleased, and rightly so. So I can see how he sort of took it that way. The fact that the ministers released something before the talks had concluded, I think is a, is a pretty uh, bold maneuver, and I can understand why it generated the pushback that it did. Um, <clears throat> that said, though, interference from the premiers seems a bit of a push. Uh, that, that, Like I said, this is something that has not come out of the blue. These conversations have been going on for some time. The premiers were not actually in the room. Um, so I thought it was kind of an interesting characterization. He was really trying to shift the blame away mm. from those who were there with him to those who were not. Uh, that also has uh, a, optics that I would be inclined to question mm. a little bit. Yeah, you even you even heard that in the clip, right? Oh, my colleagues, mm. my fellow health ministers, and now they're getting marching orders from somewhere else. It, that even comes across in the clip to say, no, 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 it's not the people who are in the room. It's the people outside the room. It's outside forces that stop exactly. us from making this deal. Uh, Joita, what do you make of the, the use of the word interference? Yeah, it's interesting. Again, now mind you, I wasn't a fly on the wall as much as I would have left oh, to have been. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Right? Right? Uh, none of us actually know what went on there, but I think it is worth remembering that health ministers or any minister uh, ultimately belong to the government and they do take their marching orders from, if you're talking provincially, the premiers, and if you're talking federally, the prime minister. So you don't really get a situation where health ministers of any stripe can go ahead and just ink deals on their own volition or do the you know do whatever it is that they feel they want to do um ultimately they do have to have uh they do have to defer to the premier in this case of the respective province they do have to get them to sign off so i feel like it is a bit of a stretch to suggest that there was interference given that health ministers can't act autonomously anyways um i think the point that michelle raised about optics and rhetoric is a really good one i said a few minutes ago Uh, this is not a good look for the federal government in light of the last two years and how much pressure the healthcare system has been under. We've talked about healthcare workers being heroes. We've also talked about healthcare workers being severely burnt out. We've talked about the wait times. We talked about people not getting access to elective surgeries. There's all of this bad news around the healthcare system. So the last thing the federal government can really go out and say in public is, sorry, we don't want to put more money towards healthcare. That's not going to go down well with the public. So what do they do? They shift the rhetoric and they shift the blame by saying, it's not us, it's them. Mm. It's the premiers who are, you know, sticking their noses in here. And it's the premiers who are refusing to broker a deal. It's the premiers who are talking about money, money and just money. And, you know, in fairness to 
the federal government and the provincial government, I think it's hard to have a conversation about healthcare without talking about healthcare spending and without talking about money. But I do think a big part of this was Duclos' attempt to shift blame away from the federal government and to say we're not responsible for the state of crisis. It's not that we're trying to be stingy with the money. It's just that this came to us out of nowhere because the premiers were interfering. And you have to wonder, because again, I said I'm not in the room. I don't know if this was a last-minute demand that the premiers put forward or if it was something that the federal government just could not be seen to go, you know, they couldn't publicly say we don't want, we don't have the means or we don't want to put more money towards the healthcare system right now. That is political. That's a very bad move politically, so they defer and they shift the blame onto the provinces. For fear of people's eyes glazing over, if I bring in tax policy, I do want to talk about taxes for a second here. This was our daily poll the other day where I asked, uh, should provinces, if they really want more money for healthcare spend- spending, shouldn't they just raise their own taxes? Like it is a provincial file. It, they have control over their own tax policy. They can raise taxes if they want to. Uh, unsurprisingly, the answers that came back from social media were no, we do not want them to raise taxes. But I think that's because people just don't like the idea of taxes, period. I think that has more to do with people's yeah. belief on taxes rather than grappling with the issue in good faith. Because a lot of provinces this past fiscal year ran surpluses. They ran surpluses. So it makes it a little bit difficult for for me at least to understand from a federal government point of view who just poured money out to provinces over the pandemic. Just borrowed a ton of money, ran up a bunch of deficits, and just handed that money to provinces and said, here, here, crisis, 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 here is some money. I kind of like feel like this is just my own feeling that the federal government probably to a certain degree says, yo, guys, we stepped up for you. How about you take a political bullet for once and you run a little deficit instead of us having to perpetually run deficits and then have you criticize us for being fiscally irresponsible as you guys are running surpluses now? Quebec's finance minister, Eric Girard, the other day said, listen, we're talking about sustainable funding models, not the ups and downs of surpluses and deficits year in, year out. So, again, I'm empathetic to the position. But again, if you're a province, you can arrange your own structural funding by raising taxes. So, Michelle, shouldn't there be some onus or obligation on provinces to actually raise their own taxes, you know, run their own fiscal policy on their health file? Oh, Dave, this is way above my pay grade. But I, I, I will say this. I, I mean, this, this is where I, I get into some personal difficulties around <clears throat> distinguishing between tax policy and, and, and the reality of having raised taxes. The fact is that no one wants to have that conversation, even if it is perhaps a really, really pressing one. Uh, no one really wants to go there, though. It is political suicide. We've seen what happens anytime taxes <clears throat> are, are proposed as a solution. And I don't I understand from a political perspective why no government really wants to go there. We have a number of premiers now who would absolutely never even consider it. It's simply not going to happen, say, here in Ontario or in Alberta, for instance. It's it's off the table. Any talk of tax increases is going to be shut down immediately. Should the onus exist? Perhaps. But we don't live in a world where we get uh, ideal scenarios. We have to deal with political realities. And given those political realities, I don't think taxes will ever be floated as a realistic solution. And in terms of the federal skin in the game, I, I do think that is something that does need to be talked about. The, the fact is that the things do change. The provinces do take the bulk of the bullets when the healthcare system goes awry because it is their file. But 
the federal government does have a vested interest in in maintaining the healthcare system. It's supposed to be one of our shining international mm-hmm. uh, accomplishments. So one could make it just as good an argument, I think, for the government uh, stepping up to the degree that the ministers are asking for. Yeah, it is fair to say that that healthcare, as it's enshrined in Canada, does start at the federal level. Under the Canada Health Act, there are four tenets. We don't need to get into all of them now, but universality and portability are two of the big things, that mm. there's supposed to be a level yeah. of standard across the, whole, across the whole country, and that's where the federal government comes in as a regulator, essentially, on that front. So, you're, Michelle, you are right to identify. It's not simply a provincial file, but, you know, sometimes your boy gets a little passionate over here. <laughs> uh, Joita, what, what do you make of the, of the tax the tax side of this conversation. Yes, I think in this political reality, it's going to be hard to sell anyone, especially in the cost of living crisis that we're dealing with right now, to sell anyone on paying higher taxes. Um, And I'm talking about the fact that people are really feeling the pinch right now when they go to the grocery store or till very recently until they were going to fill their, you know, they're going to fill the gas at at the gas station. It's going to be very hard to to sell politically the idea that the way you you restore or revitalize the healthcare system is by taxing people more. Besides which, uh, again, from the point of view of rhetoric, what the province has said is that historically it had been a 50-50 split between the the provinces and the federal government. We're not there right now. The provinces are claiming that the federal government is putting in 22% with the balance coming from the provinces. The federal government is quibbling about those numbers and saying when you adjust for inflation, it's actually closer to 36%. But no one is saying it's near that 50-50 split. So I think one of the reasons why they're not actually going to go ahead and and propose increasing provincial taxes as a solution, though it could be a solution, A, it's because it's not going to fly with their base and with voters, and B, it's because it effectively lets the federal government off the hook, Mm. which is what provincial Mm. governments don't want. The second thing I want to pick up on is something you said, Dave, and I just want to dig into it a little bit more, which is around the Canada Health Act and the fact that we are supposed to have a national healthcare system with uh, you know those the the four things that you laid out: universality, portability, standardization. So let's just run with what you're saying here. Let's assume that the federal government backs off more or even entirely. You could have a province with very deep pockets and deep revenues and the ability to raise a lot of taxes, and they will be fine. Their healthcare system will fare well. But what about a province that doesn't have, let's say, the same access to natural resources, doesn't have the same access to revenue, isn't able to generate the same uh, amount of, of, of income tax? What happens to the healthcare system in that province. Part of the reason why the federal government has a role to play, it isn't just about, you know, the dollars and the cents. It's about guaranteeing a minimum standard of healthcare across the country, regardless mm-hmm. of where you live. And I think that's a big part politically. Um, you know, that's a, a big reason why politically the taxation argument isn't going to float. But I also want to say, what about a Canadian uh, who goes from, let's say, I don't know, Alberta to New Brunswick to Quebec, it's the involvement of the federal government that will hopefully ensure that they'll get the same level of health care and the same level of treatment regardless of which province they live in. And that's not something you can guarantee mm-hmm. once you take the federal government out of the yeah. equation. Another crucial part that the federal government plays is Indigenous health care. Mm-hmm. This is the file that they are solely responsible for. And I feel like that particular topic is not necessarily coming up in these conversations to the degree that perhaps it needs to.
Mm, that's well put. And I think that's a good spot to land this conversation. Thank you for visiting this meeting with me. And as I say every time we talk about healthcare, I sense we'll talk about this again sometime inside the next month because that's just the way it goes. <laughs> Coming yep. up next, Canada's foreign affairs minister is warning businesses against deepening their ties with China. We'll share our thoughts on that story. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie wants Canadian businesses to take a cautious approach of working with China. Jolie notes the risks that go along with dealings abroad. What I would like to say to Canadians doing business in and with China, you need to be clear-eyed. The decision you take as business people are your own. Jolie says that areas like human rights mark a departure from Canadian standards. China is an increasingly disruptive global power. It seeks to shape the global environment into one that is more permissive for interests and values that increasingly depart from ours. Jolie will be unveiling Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy by the end of this year. And of course, as we talked about at the top of the show today, the Prime Minister is off to Southeast Asia for a number of meetings related to deepening economic ties with the region as well. Michelle, this press conference and this story jumped out to you. Why? Because this is actually quite a radical departure for the federal government. When I saw this headline, I said, am I reading this correctly? If you think back to the time when... Michael Kovrick and Michael Spavor were in prison in China for three years plus. Uh, Canada had a very, very cautious tone. They were very careful not to antagonize China. There was a long, long stretch where we weren't sure what role, if any, Huawei was going to have in our 5G network here because there was no commitment in terms of how that would look or if that was going to be allowed to go forward. And now all of a sudden we're hearing much, much harder messaging, even though to my knowledge, and please correct me if I've missed something, but I don't think anything significant has changed in China in terms of uh, activities going on there. Certainly leadership has not changed. Uh, all the human rights concerns that were being pushed against the federal government during their time of relative passivity are still in play. So I don't really know what exactly shifted, but the government certainly seems to have gotten a different kind of memo and is going in a different direction in a, at a time when, as you've noted, <laughs> there's, we have a lot going on in terms of supply chain issues, uh, in terms of economic unrest and unsettlement around the world. It seems to me like it's going to be difficult to limit ties with China in the current economic context. But given all of this, I figured we'd have a few things to sink our teeth mm-hmm, into. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can take a whirl at your question of what may Absolutely. have changed, there's there's two things that I would say are notable. Number one is China has very much sat on the sidelines, or at least certainly not been part of the mm-hmm. American and European movement in, regard, in regards to Russia's war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, very to, true. to say yeah. that they're affiliated with Russia would be a little too far, but they're still buying a lot of Russian oil and gas. They're certainly still sending some supplies to Russia. They definitely have not been part of the broader sanctions that we've seen. And I'm not going to use the word the West because I hate that expression, but that Europe and North America have really uh, spearheaded with many other allies around the world 
two. So that's one thing. The other thing that's changed is Xi Jinping, their president, was reaffirmed recently mm-hmm. to say that this mm-hmm. this is going to be the person who will continue to be at the helm here, even though it was thought that perhaps his term was coming to an end. And there has been some cracking down on dissidents inside the party. Again, that's getting like really deep into geopolitics. But I do wonder if there's some apprehension about about more authoritarian, I mean, it's always been pretty authoritarian, but an even deeper authoritarian move inside that country. So I do wonder if that has something to do with it. But I'll say all of that with saying this kind of rhetoric makes me like deeply uncomfortable. I believe in multilateral relationships internationally, and I'm never quite comfortable with the idea of cutting countries out or creating countries and calling them sort of boogeymen. And that's essentially what that press conference was. It was calling China a giant boogeyman. Uh, But before I ramble too far, Juita, I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in on this as well. Um, I think the other thing to keep in mind, especially when Michelle talked about the two Michaels, is that it is often the case that when you have um, citizens of one country held in custody in another country, that you try to approach, I think, those situations with more delicacy and diplomacy. Um, It's really not the strategy in that situation is really not to be aggressive um, because you don't know, because you have you have the lives of people hanging in the balance. As the prime minister put it in a debate uh, a couple of years ago, you don't lob tomatoes across the Pacific. Yeah. So I think that was the <laughs> other thing. I think uh, what this is strategy is doing now, though, is it's uh, A, doing something that I think the business community has long sought some guidance mm-hmm. from the federal government in terms of actually having an Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, it, there, you know, and, But it is also, as you pointed out, Dave, responding to... Um, the confirmation of Xi, Xi Jinping um, and the fact that things are looking like they're getting to be more authoritarian in China. So I think there's a couple of things here to unravel, and I look forward to talking to both of you about them. Uh, so, Juita, I'm going to stay with you here. Mm-hmm. Your reaction to the idea that Melanie Jolie is already telling people and businesses to at least soften their relationships or be cautious with their relationships even before the strategy is released? Yeah, I mean, th- I think what this is doing is um, anticipating the strategy to a certain extent. Yep. It's saying that, um, you know, you try to limit your interactions with China. I think it's if it's absurd to suggest that we can't have any dealings with China at all because they are the oh, world's... Oh, it's impossible. Yeah, it's yeah. Impossible. Second, largest, yeah. second largest economy. It's also Canada's second largest trading partner. Yeah, that's not going to happen. But they're just saying keep your eyes open, be cautious. And they're also saying... Uh, that you might want to try to reduce economic ties with China, but also increase trade relationships with other countries. I know they've talked about India being one of them. Uh, I think it is more so a recognition that Canada is becoming less open, more authoritarian, and from the business point of view, less reliable from a legal and commercial policy framework. So if you're doing business in a country and something goes awry, you want to know or have the confidence to know that you would be able to access the courts in that in in the country where you're conducting business mm. and you'll be subject mm-hmm. to the rule of law and i think now the sentiment is we can't guarantee that Canadian businessmen or business owners will get access to a guaranteed rule of law in China because their legal system is becoming more authoritarian and we don't 
we can't guarantee that the outcomes you get will be the outcomes you expect. So I think that's really uh, what's happening here. It is largely anticipating the strategy, which will be announced in a few weeks. And as I said, it's trying to balance the fact that China is becoming more aggressive and authoritarian with the reality that you can't really cut China out of the equation at all. Mm. Michelle, Joita is right to suggest that, in my opinion, Joita is right to suggest that this seems like perhaps a bit of a primer ahead of the strategy, saying don't be Absolutely. surprised when we release the strategy in a few weeks. But what do you make of the caution, sort of the, the, the flare being sent up before the strategy is even released? Yeah, I agree. I think it is not only laying a bit of groundwork and being a bit of a teaser for the strategy itself, which has been long awaited. Uh, in fact, I believe it was promised a couple of mandates ago. Uh, so that this is it, it's a bit of a carrot to dangle, but I think it also does a little bit of table setting for this trip coming up. Uh, the, the Prime Minister is in transit as we speak. He's going to be spending quite a bit of time in the region over the next few days in some pretty big high-level meetings. And I, I think this is also just a, a little bit of a, um, a flare is a good word that you use there uh, ahead of those meetings to signal maybe a bit of a direction change from Canada. I'm not, again, we, we don't have seats in those rooms where those meetings take place. So I don't know how much of a shift it will represent for those who have been there before and interacted with Canada in that context before. Uh, but I do think this might be a bit of a signal of what lies ahead for those meetings. Um, and also some of the areas of focus that were, were flagged there were interesting. We, there was a lot of talk, of course, about economic ties and the business community did welcome that guidance. Uh, but there was also discussion about how to engage with China on, on files like climate change. Uh, it's time to raise concerns about China's human rights record, even as it touted uh, potential trade with other governments who also have some uh, practices that have drawn international attention on the human rights front. Uh, so I think it's it's maybe just a bit of a blueprint for where Canada stands on this right now. So during the course of this press conference, uh, Minister Jolie talked about the possibility of saying, yeah, we're going to develop deepened relationships with other major trading partners. And Joita, you said India, and that was definitely the golden goose that seems to get trotted forward a lot over the course of the last decade. We're going to deepen our trade relationships with India, the, the second biggest country in the world that could be a, a huge emerging economy and could be a massive trading partner. But to this point, Canada has yet to really establish substantial trading deals with India. Joita, what do you make of sort of India being held up as this golden goose alternative. Yeah, I mean... Um, if you were to speak to some analysts or commentators, they would point out that India has its problems too. It is the world's largest democracy, but there are some severe problems. And uh, mm -hmm. a lot of people would argue that India is in fact less democratic today than it was 10 years ago. You've seen under Narendra Modi, the repression of minorities, a rise in Hindu fundamentalism. So India is not a panacea. But um, if you understand, if you if you read between the lines, what Melanie Jolie is saying in anticipation of the strategy, it's really an invitation for Canadian businesses to diversify trade, and I think that's where um, India becomes really attractive because the economy has grown rapidly in the last ten to fifteen years. Uh, there are several un. Um, there's a lot of there's an untapped market. There's a lot of economic opportunity there for Canadian businesses. There's this trade market that hasn't really been tapped into, and we're talking about the world's second largest population. As things stand, it's the sixth fastest growing economy in the world. Um, it's supposed to become the world's third largest economy by 2030. So I think what's really what's really motivating. 
closer relationships with India maybe has less to do with their track record as a democracy, although, of course, that's how it's being sold, but has a lot more to do with the with the economic opportunities that have remained unrealized up to this point. Yeah, I'm also a little uncomfortable with the framing of, like, it's the it, the, the democracy side. We're only going to do trade with democracies. It, it, there, there, there'd be a lot of uh, push and pull if we were trying to sort of play that game more broadly. But, Joita, you're right. It, the fact is it's the second biggest country in the world. Um, we've seen since the war in Ukraine started, there have been some energy issues in India to the point they had to make some really hard decisions about the import of Russian oil and gas. So I'm sure there's plenty of Canadian energy producers who see that as a huge opportunity as well. Michelle, what do you make of sort of India being cast as the stalking horse in this situation? I, I really feel Joita captured it perfectly. I, there, I felt uh, that raised my eyebrows a little bit given the concerns about human rights that have been raised about... Um, Oh no! Did we lose Michelle? I think we lost I think Michelle. We, I think we lost Michelle, but um, but I think I think I think she was definitely going to be on board with us there. And what in regard to what you were saying, uh, Joita, uh, you know what? Let's do this. We let's, we lost Michelle, but we're a little tight for time anyway. So why don't we wrap this segment? We'll try to reconnect with Michelle, and after the break, we'll explore some controversy over Netflix's newest season of The Crown. This is the Now News Panel on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We've got one more topic on deck, and this one coming from the world of entertainment. Sort of. Netflix is taking some heat for not including the historical fiction disclaimer on the new season of The Crown. If you're not familiar with the show, it's about the royal family. Ish. I'm using ish a lot in this segment. Dame Judi Dench state, uh, stirred up the controversy saying that it's disrespectful to the monarchy not to have that disclaimer on it. Uh, Joita, you thought this one was really interesting. Why? Well, to be honest with you, it's because I was going to pitch the health minister's meeting, but you oh. beat me to it. <laughs> it's the beauty of our email chain. Whoever, whoever gets the first email in first gets to pick their topic. Yeah, early bird and all that. Um, but it is an interesting topic. It, it, it It's... Um, very much uh, top of mind. I think a lot of us will be staying up late to watch the fifth season of The Crown. And there is something to be said for uh, where you draw the line and where you, how much creative license one actually gets if you are dealing with very recent historic events. You know, do real people get a say in how they're portrayed on screen or is all manner of uh, fictionalized, fictionalization excusable if we say it's under the auspices of, of creative of liberties and license and you know ultimately should there have been a disclaimer there's no harm in having a disclaimer so there's something to be said for netflix refusing to put one there in the first place yeah i mean this this to me I, we're using the word controversy i i think there's way more oxygen in the world to be put towards more important issues than this i do think this is a prime example though of just put a disclaimer on here. Like, it takes no time to put up the disclaimer. It takes three seconds before an episode rolls. Although the other side of me oscillates a little bit and says, are we really at this point where, like, we can't comprehend that a fictional TV show is not an exact recreation of real historical events? Like, I, I, I waver on this, yeah. Michelle. What about you? Yeah, can I put on my overthinking champion hat here? I think we are at that point. We are living in an age of extreme misinformation where people misappropriate things all the time, where there are so many 
counteracting narratives to things. Um, I do think it is such an easy solution to just make it abundantly clear that this is a fictional account. It, t- it takes no time to do this. There are people who are going to misconstrue events on the crown and go and try and update a Wikipedia page. You just know this is going to happen. <laughs> this, it, it does happen. Um, I, I don't necessarily think people make that distinction. And, and I do also think that, and this is a bit of a journalism lens coming in here for me, but some of the events that are supposed to be portrayed in this next com- upcoming season of The Crown, which I, for one, will not be watching because I, I just didn't get it. Um, <laughs> I tried season one and I was just not into it. But um, some of the events that they're trying to portray there are, are honestly, they would be pretty, they would be considered libelous if they were put into a, a nonfiction context, I think. So with that in mind, uh, to me, this has nothing to do with the recent death of the queen or the recent changes in the monarchy. Some people are positioning it along those lines. To me, it's not really about that. It's about transparency and doing whatever small part even a media or a a producer of film and TV can do to limit misinformation. Joita, what do you make of just simply the fact of the no disclaimer being there? I honestly agree with you. I think the controversy has been over has been blown way out of proportion. It's not difficult to put a, a, a disclaimer on if they really wanted to, but nor is one truly required in this instance. A good analogy is Shakespeare, where you get into a lot of historic drama, but we don't see disclaimers in a, in front of Shakespeare's work saying, this Antony and Cleopatra play does not depict historical events exactly as they took place however thousands of years ago. It's absurd. I mean, there is an extent, there is a point at which people realize that what they're watching is a fictionalized and slightly dramatic account of a real-world event, uh, events and real-world people. So I don't think that a disclaimer is truly necessary, but it could have been something that Netflix uh, could have done. They did put a disclaimer in the in the trailer saying that it was inspired by real-life <laughs> events, but not in the actual episodes. Really, there was no harm in putting a disclaimer in there. The other thing I'll say is that not everything in the Netflix uh, seasons preceding this uh, was sensationalized. So a good example is the two cousins with developmental disabilities. Uh, I don't think that's a story that has been that was widely known by the public before The Crown came out about the two cousins who were all but forgotten by the royal family who lived in institutions for the majority of their adult life. And I think in that respect... I've been wondering if this whole kerfuffle about disclaimer or no disclaimer has less to do with questions of accuracy and fairness and more to do with the fact that the portrayal of the monarchy in this very turbulent decade, which is the 90s, may not have been as flattering to or complimentary to the monarchy as um, as monarchists would have liked it to be. So I, I'm wondering how much of this is actually flowing from the anticipated content in, in season five. Yeah, I, I think to a degree we have to let entertainers have some creative license mm-hmm. in entertainment. Um, but I do agree with Michelle to a degree as well. Michelle, I like that you put the overthinking cap on that says we do have to be careful about how much we sensationalize <laughs> something, how, how, how deeply we go into. I just don't think the monarchy is necessarily the type of institution that requires that kind of protection if we were going to be talking about like say a 9-11 style uh style movie or like a a COVID-19 style movie at that point I'd be willing to start throwing up a few more red flags I really don't care if this makes the monarchy uncomfortable or makes monarchist lovers uncomfortable Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I'm with you on that. The, the, I definitely agree there are bigger fish to fry out there. But I will say that pop culture does go a long way to shaping perceptions of things. And there are elements of past historical figures that have been entrenched in pop culture that are not accurate. And that's come down over time. I'm thinking one example, I, I wrote a story about this a long time ago, was King Richard III, who's... Uh, legacy and and popular perception has been largely shaped by the Shakespeare play where he's cast as just an irredeemable villain. Mm. And there's more to it than that, as as some of us know, but most did not. And I certainly did not until I had to write a story about something Richard adjacent. I have a cool yeah. job. Um, <laughs> Michelle, we, we got to go. We got to go. We've literally got a hard out here to get to the Remembrance Day uh, coverage here on AMI-tv. But Michelle, Juita, thank you both for this. Thank you. Thank you. After the break, when we come back, it will not be me. It will be our coverage of CBC's Remembrance Day 2022 broadcast. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, November the 11th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely reviews The Forgotten Battle. And Shelley Petit discusses new legislation in New Brunswick that ensures employees with disabilities receive a minimum wage. We'll bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat in just a moment, but I do want to share a story for you from the business world. Cryptocurrency exchange FTX has had a very, very bad week. Derek Dennis explains in Tech Trends. FTX was one of the biggest marketplaces for people to buy and sell crypto until news broke that founder Sam Bankman-Fried was improperly using money from the company. Basically using customer funds to provide loans to Alameda, his other company, a hedge fund. Dan Roberts is the editor-in-chief of Decrypt. He says on Sunday, the leader of a different exchange, Binance, dumped its supply of FTX's cryptocurrency called FTT. And I think it had something like $500 million worth of FTT. He says that prompted a run on FTX. On Sunday alone, they saw $5 billion worth of withdrawals. Binance mounted an effort to buy FTX before pulling out of the deal on Wednesday. Bankman Freed tweeted Thursday his company is now doing everything we can to raise liquidity. With Tech Trends, I'm Derek Dennis, ABC News. So cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is always going to be a bit of a touchy subject because there are very few people who land themselves in the middle in this conversation. You either have the evangelicals who think that decentralized cryptocurrency is the absolute future and you have those strong institutionalists who say this is funny money, it's garbage, it's nonsense. And we've talked about it on the show from time to time and I always try to give you this disclaimer that there is a place and something about cryptocurrency that makes sense. And a lot of people, because maybe they've only heard about cryptocurrency in the last two or three years, are doing this tap dance on the people who ran towards Bitcoin and ran towards other forms of cryptocurrency over the course of the last two years when there really was an unregulated boom around a series of cryptocurrency. And all these exchanges popped up like FDX and like Binance. And people are somewhat losing 
the point because they're unwilling to understand the middle ground here. For so long, the appeal of cryptocurrency for people who are evangelical about it is this runs away from regulation. We do not require regulation. Allow us to be decentralized. And this is the consequence that you get. You get the consequences of these unregulated exchanges doing funny business, engaging in what could easily be called fraud, and they take your money. There's also the fact that like any single kind of investment that exists at all, if you're late to the party, you're going to get burnt, right? That's just going to happen. And people were late to the crypto party. Let me just give you a quick number for reference here. Now, apologies, I'm pulling, up, pulling this up in real time on Yahoo Finance. But let's just take a quick peek here at where Bitcoin's at because people doing the tap dance on Bitcoin's grave right now. And again, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. It's like talking about Coke being a soft drink, but Bitcoin is the Coke of the cryptocurrency world. So as we say, look at the six month breakdown of Bitcoin. Oh gosh, it's lost 40% of its value. It's down to $22,478 per Bitcoin. Right? Oh man, you got in six months ago, you've lost almost half your wealth. That's wild. Okay, well, what about one year? Oh man, I've lost 72% of my value over the course of the last 12 months. That's devastating. And yes, it is, because maybe you jumped on a trend and didn't know what you were buying. But how about we zoom out a little bit further to five years ago? Five years ago, if you'd bought Bitcoin, you would have made a profit of 179%. You would have made $14,450 something dollars per Bitcoin. So again, anytime we're talking about investments, timing the market is never necessarily a sound strategy. Time in market is typically the winner. But if you come into something late that's unregulated and you don't know what you're buying because you're buying on a trend, that's a problem. So I just think people who are doing victory laps on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin today, they were really waiting to do that dancing on the grave. And people who were evangelicals are now hiding after screaming at us on social media and Reddit for years. This is a perfect example of where when we're talking about money and we're talking about financial instruments, we need to understand what we're doing and we need to have transparency. And we shouldn't be taking victory laps on people because ultimately, maybe I should have started here. When you have people, and sometimes in some cases politicians, maybe someone who uh, is currently the leader of a major federal party in Canada, who is encouraging people to put their money into cryptocurrency as a defense against inflation, and now we see the bottom coming out, it's irresponsible. If you're not capable of offering financial advice and you're licensed to offer financial advice, you shouldn't. Because at the end of the day, it's people who pay the price on this. That's my thoughts on cryptocurrency for the day. I hope I didn't lose you along the way. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Oh, Brock. Sorry, man. I started talking about money and I got lost. But you want to start today where we started yesterday with an update on some international para-sport events. Yes. So uh, the update I have for you on sitting volleyball is that the women's team... Uh, for Canada beat Slovakia in the semifinals three sets to nothing and then you ask the question okay what happened in the other semifinal well I have your answer 
Uh, Brazil beat the United States. Yippee Kaye for this one. I always like to see when the United States <laughs> fall to another nation. <laughs> I, I, I don't hide my Anti, anti-American <laughs> Brock Richardson over there. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're a national show in Canada, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, this, this is we're good. Americans so, only listen uh, to the podcast, so they'll, they'll they'll only be able to criticize us in not in real time. Uh, exactly. So uh, Brazil beat the United States. Uh, the same score, three nothing in sets. So that means Canada and Brazil will take on each other for the gold medal. If we switch to the wheelchair basketball event that we talked about, the series between the Netherlands and Team Canada. Uh, we are now tied 1-1. The score was almost the same, uh, just reversed, 73-53. Uh, this time for the Netherlands. Game 3 is going at 10 a.m. Eastern. Again, there's no uh, live stream for this, so go to uh, the Wheelchair Basketball Canada Facebook page to check the scores, and I will bring you further update on Monday. Very good. Hey, Brock, you were scouring the sports statistic world over the course of the last couple of days, and you found a couple of neat ones that you wanted to share. Okay. So there, there's two, and I understand what I'm about to give you is one's a little bit more lopsided than the other. So let's start with number one. Uh, did you know that Ovechkin and Sidney Crosby had the exact same number of points headed into a game the other day no way uh it was 14 1423 was the amount of points that they both went into in the exact same game at the exact same time Sidney crosby did end up getting a point in that game against each other head to head so obviously now he's one point ahead at the time of uh, discussing this or we have another one as i'm scrolling down in real time um where we look at Nick Suzuki, who has played six games, scored six goals and four assists for a total of 10 points. Again, I know one is more lopsided than the other, but which of the two is cooler and why or why not? Okay, all right. Let let me grapple with both of them. The fact is the uh, Ovechkin-Crosby one is cooler. The fact is that they started their NHL careers at the same time. Ovechkin's played a few more games than Crosby, but the fact that they have the exact same point total all these years later is a real testament to what fixtures they've been in the league and in the sport of hockey over the course of Brock. Can you believe this? The last 16 years, they've been essentially the faces of the league. And it's remarkable that that rivalry between Sid, the kid and the great eight that we had when they first broke into the league in the fall of 2005, that we're still sitting here today and looking at them as comparables is so so cool. So I saw this statistic, Dave, and I've got to be honest as we're talking about it. I saw this statistic. It came up on my uh, feed on Facebook because, as you can imagine, a lot of my feed is sports-related. No kidding. I've definitely um, noticed that uh, now that we're friends on Facebook. I've noticed there's a lot of my sports news coming my way via Brock. <laughs> but uh, I, I had to check this because I'm thinking, really, they have the exact same point total uh, and they played the exact well the exact same amount of years. Obviously, as you mentioned, uh, one has more games than the other. But they started on the exact same night when they uh, got into the NHL. So this is just really cool. When I, I lean towards uh, Sidney Crosby, obviously Canadian boy, and I 
my first exposure to junior hockey was because of uh, Sidney Crosby, and he played for uh, the Ramuski Oceanic. Oceanic, and and I mean, I watched him at the juniors, and he's the reason why today I'm hooked on the juniors because there's just so many dynamic players um, that play in the juniors. But I would argue that Sidney Crosby will be the most uh, dynamic as of recent history that we've seen at the World Juniors, and he stands the test of time mm. and scored the 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 gold medal winning um, goal for Canada oh, in 2010, 2010 which I have, which I have a huge mural of that. Uh, my family bought me a, uh, a mural of that um, many Christmases ago and I have it above my TV in my house and I cherish it every day because the images are just so cool. But I digress. That statistic is uh, no kidding. Yeah. The better one. Congratulations, Nick Suzuki. Oh, I think what he's do- doing is great, but, I tip the scales very much on this for sure. Brock, let me reflect on Nick Suzuki of the Montreal Canadiens, though, because like that's my boy right there. That's my guy. I love Nick Suzuki. It's not just Nick Suzuki, though, in the last six games. In the last six games, the Montreal Canadiens reworked their first line to be Nick Suzuki at center, Cole Caulfield, former first-round pick of the Montreal Canadiens on one wing, and Kirby Dock, former third-overall pick of the Chicago Blackhawks, who the Canadiens acquired this summer at the draft. They've put this line together and all three of them have just exploded statistically you're talking about three of the most dynamic young talented players in the league on a line together Kirby Doc was drafted as a center he's really struggled in the face-off circle his entire time in the league which continued into the early part of this season so you know what the team did they said forget about it we don't need you to be a center. We have Sean Monahan. We have Christian Dvorak. We have Nick Suzuki. Let's put your giant six foot three frame on a wing with Suzuki and Caulfield. And that line is absolutely dominating teams right now. It's amazing to watch. And it's got Montreal fans looking at these three guys all under the age of 23 or 23 and under on the edge of our seats, delightedly happy. Season's still early. Montreal fans are still actually hoping for maybe the bottom to fall out so we can get a better draft pick. But in the meantime, we love seeing our young players performing like this. It's been a testament to Martin St. Louis. It's a testament to those three players. And we are jacked up, Brock. So, yeah, the Crosby-Ovechkin stat is cooler. But as you can tell, I'm very excited about Nick Suzuki. Yeah, and I mean, I love Nick Suzuki, too, as a player. I actually love watching uh, Montreal Canadiens when I get the chance because of that very line you just discussed and just the fact that they're so young and just so uh dynamic and what they can do they they seem to be more hungry than some teams they played as of recent uh days and they just seem to be those young kids that have something to prove and i find dave when you get uh, above a certain age in the national hockey league you, you kind of see things where it's like you start seeing players coast because it's like oh I've got my contracts, I've got my big contracts, and I, I just see with younger athletes, when they get their start, you see them flying out, and that's that's the case here with Montreal. I just hope it continues over the longevity of all of their careers yeah. because it would be good for Montreal in the long term. Brock, we're going to run tight on time here, so we've got to go rapid fire through this. You want to give me a 30-second reaction to some trouble with the Edmonton Oilers? Yes. Uh, I saw an article uh, this morning that said Jack Campbell is not cutting it. I watched uh, bits of the games and then completed the highlights uh, last night. I agree with this article I read. He is not cutting it. His positioning is horrible. 
Connor McDavid's doing Connor McDavid things, and it's just not enough uh, for this team. Uh, Jay Woodcroft is uh, puzzled in post-game uh, scrums. It, it just things don't seem to be going well. But when you don't have your goalie going, you don't have yeah. much of anything that's hockey that's hockey for you through and through our goalie's not playing well turns out we're no good our goalie's playing great we're amazing uh brock let's do a quick weekend look here look ahead i've got one game that i want to share with you from the college football world but what's the one game that you insist i'm have to watch this weekend i know it's tough sometimes but you got to watch the cfl we're at the semi-final uh weekend and for me again the marquee matchup has got to be uh, Winnipeg, who's the uh, defending Grey Cup champions over the BC Lions. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's Toronto and, and uh, Montreal, which is always good, but that's not the sexy game of the weekend. The sexy game of the weekend is the 4 o'clock game. It, it's going to be a case of what is this, rest or or the fact that you get to play back-to-back. We'll see what happens here. Uh, Winnipeg and Toronto have both had rest. We'll see whether they come out ready to go or a little bit rusty and that's going to be sort of the storyline that is uh you know going to be above things brock tomorrow night 7 30 p.m eastern time on abc possibly on tsn sometimes tsn picks up the abc game but certainly on abc the texas christian university longhorns number four ranked team in the nation visiting austin texas for a clash with the 18th ranked University of Texas Longhorns. You heard me. The Horned Frogs against the Longhorns. The question will be, who is more horny? Who's going to win the game? (laughs) Number four, Texas Christian University. They are currently undefeated. They control their own destiny. They win this game and they win out. They are going to the college football playoffs. They've got a great quarterback, Max Duggan, who's only thrown two interceptions all year in nine games. The guy takes care of the ball while still moving the ball vertically down the field. Texas Christian University has one of the most exciting offenses in the country. They have no defense to speak of whatsoever. Their old coach is the defensive coordinator for the Texas Longhorns. His name's Gary Patterson. So this is a revenge game through and through in Austin, Texas, tomorrow night, 7.30 p.m. Eastern time. That's my recommendation to you, Brock. If you're going to watch one college football game week this weekend, that is the one. Awesome. I would like to find out also who is more horny. I just <laughs> wanted to throw in my opportunity to get that in there. I thought it was funny. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm already afraid about some of the flack I'm going to take in the post-show meeting for that one. Brock, have a great day. I'm right there with you. Don't worry. <laughs> I stand with you. <laughs> we jumped off that boat together. That's Brock Richardson. He is at the AMI Sports Desk. Let's bring in Alex Smythe at the AMI Weather Desk. your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's cloudy with a chance of rain or snow this morning, then a mix of sun and clouds. There's a special weather statement with heavy snowfall expected this weekend and a high of six. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a chance of showers. A special weather statement is in effect due to the remnants of Tropical Storm Nicole, and it's expected to hit on Saturday. 13 is the high. In St. John near Brunswick, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a special weather statement is in effect as well with heavy rains expected to arrive tonight. The high is 15. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's mainly cloudy and 14 is the high. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds with rain coming up to 10 millimeters expected. 15 is the high. 
over to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, rain off and on today in a high of 10. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's a mix of sun and clouds with more clouds rolling in and minus six is the high. Regina, Saskatchewan, it's a mix of sun and clouds clearing this afternoon and the high is negative 11. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's sunny with a high of negative one. Red Deer, Alberta, it's sunny, high of negative 10 with a wind chill of minus 32 this morning. In Whitehorse, Yukon, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snowfall and a high of minus seven. In Kelowna, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of snow flurries this afternoon and minus five is the high. And finally in, in Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or rain and a high of six. That's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, Michael McNeely reviews the film The Forgotten Battle in honor of Remembrance Day. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Michael McNeely is here for a movie review. Michael recently watched The Forgotten Battle, a Dutch film about a World War II. The film is on Netflix and available in English with closed captioning and audio description. Michael is in Toronto with a few thoughts on the film. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Michael, ahead of Remembrance Day, this was a movie that caught your attention. What drew you to it initially? Well, I was looking for a good Canadian film, and I couldn't think of anything more Canadian than going to a Dutch film to learn about Canada's participation in World War II. So I think it's important for us to look, look at ourselves from the perspectives of others to look inward by looking outward to see how others understand us and our participation on the world stage. Along those lines, does Canada have a lot of films about war? Unfortunately, no. So with my research that I've conducted over the last few weeks, there's really only two main films about war, and those were directed by Paul Gross, who you may know has played a multi for many years. Um, it's kind of disappointing to see such a, uh, to see such a small number of war films, uh, films about Canadian experiences during the war, because we have a lot of stories to tell, and we should be telling those stories. We should be doing more. I think Paul has been helping us along those lines, but he, he shouldn't be the only one that's doing it. Let's come back to The Forgotten Battle. What is The Forgotten Battle about? So, if you recall, in World War II, we had the D-Day invasion, or the invasion of Normandy, um, and that was a great turning point for the Allies in changing what, the, what World War II would ultimately end up being. As a result of the D-Day invasion, the Allies needed to get a harbor so that we could start mobilizing troops and getting supplies into Europe to fight 
to fight off the Germans. And so the forgotten battle is essentially what happened after the Allies took Antwerp, which is the, the capital of Belgium, of course, and also a harbor in its own right. But we did not yet have the, the Scheldt River that led to Antwerp, so that meant we could not use it as a harbor yet. We needed to get the Scheldt River, and that's why this film is called The Forgotten Battle, because it's really about the battle to get the river. What was the relationship between Canada and the Netherlands? Well, as you may know, there was over 1.1 billion roses shipped to Canada this year. And that's always uh, a celebration of the Tulip Festival. The tulips represent a friendship between the Netherlands and Canada, which has always existed since Canada played a big part in the liberation of the Netherlands, including the Scheldt River that we're talking about today. Canada's been there for the Netherlands, and the Netherlands has not forgotten us. But it's also important to remember, as this film has shown us, that the Netherlands were also there for Canada, because Canada was the one that was participating in the European conflict, and the Netherlands were trying to do their best to help us and themselves at the center. Let's talk about films about war. There are a lot of movies that deal with war, some good, some bad. What are the elements that make for a compelling movie about war? Please feel free to jump in, Dave, but I feel like war movies are typically the same across the board, especially the, in the last previous years. We focused on the experiences of men, they focused on the experiences of young men, in particular, innocent young men who have no experience of travel and who have no experience of the world beyond their small borders. We're talking about movies that mostly take place in World War One or World War Two and Vietnam. So most of most of the soldiers going out would have no experience of these countries that they were fighting. Um, they have no experience about taking care of themselves. They have no experience about working, typically. They're, they're working for the military. That's probably their first big job. And as a result, they are more or less overwhelmed by the conflict, by the confusing situations that they find themselves in, by the large number of death that they, they face. They, they may not make it out alive. They'll definitely be changed forever, as we talked about with breaking a few weeks ago. That the experience of participating in armed conflict or serving in the military is not an easy one. War is oftentimes described as hell, and the compelling war movies are the ones that capture that. Movies like Apocalypse Now, showing the descent into madness, the impact of trauma on people, films like Platoon and The Deer Hunter. Again, those are Vietnam-centric movies, but they, they speak to it. Even movies like All's Quiet on the Western Front, um, both the original, I haven't seen the new one out on Netflix yet, that show the horror and show that brutality and don't glorify what it is that happened there. It's the human experience, people losing lives and losing limbs and being irreparably changed for the rest of their lives. War stories, the good ones, the compelling ones, are about the human experience. 
Yes, I agree with that, and that's why the forgotten battle is wide up there with those films. I think the forgotten battle is really about three different stories, and they're all human-centered. They're all about relationships. There's two men, two stories about two men that are fighting, and a third story about a woman who's trying to save her brother, who is a prisoner of war, and has been taken hostage. Um, and may or may not be executed by the Germans. What's really interesting about the Forgotten Battle is that it actually takes the time to tell a story of a German fighter. Because, you know, the Germans were against us in World War II, but their stories are just as valid as us. And there are no Canadian main characters, but Canada is represented in the film as the force that is coming towards to liberate the Netherlands through the Scheldt River. And I feel that that is an important point that the film is making about Canadians. That the Canadians were trying to do their best, but they didn't understand the situations that they were getting themselves involved. I believe there was at least 3,000 casualties for the Canadians. So there was quite a number of people that died and they died partly because of a lack of knowledge or a lack of information about what was really going on. Michael, I think it was contained a little bit in what you just said, but what do you believe the Forgotten Battle does really well? I think the Forgotten Battle really represents the Netherlands, because I don't think we've really seen a representation of Netherlands in wartime. So one of the things that people will realize about the Netherlands and fighting in the Netherlands was that it was muddy. It was flooded. The Germans were flooding the Netherlands to try and hold back the Allies. The Battle of the Scheldt was a month long. It went on from October 2nd, 1994, and lasted into November 8th, with more than 6,000 Canadian casualties. Okay, so I didn't make a mistake. I said 3,000 Canadian casualties, but it's actually 6,000 Canadian casualties. The Germans suffered up to 12,000 casualties, and they had 41,000 captured. So I think it really shows the, the, the sheer catastrophe, if you will, Dave, of, of you know how many people could die in such a short amount of time. This is a month that we're talking about. This is a month literally in the mud, literally, literally in the flooded joy. And the Canadians were not the best at this. They were trying to use amphibian, amphibian techniques, but they, of course, didn't hold a candle to the Netherlands or to the Germans who had already been there for some time. Um, I think that's ultimately it. One of the one of the things that the film does well is it shows you what that's like because because most of the time we've been looking at other kinds of films and other kinds of areas doing our war films. What do you think could have been improved about the movie? I don't know if there's much that could have been improved. I think sometimes, just for those with low vision, it's hard to say it's hard to say a war film because it's all dreary and it's all you know, rainy and muddy, and it's hard to tell who's friend or foe. But I think that, that comes with the territory. I don't think we would expect a war film to be bright and bouncy and half colorful, you know, pastoral backgrounds or whatever. So I think, you know, it's just the audio description is important. And to your point, Dave, the audio description is in Dutch. So we still have to look for an English audio description for this film. 
but hopefully someday it will be available. Michael, I mentioned a couple war movies that I really enjoy. Um, I did I did not mention, and I forgot to mention, uh, Dunkirk, the movie that Christopher Nolan made a couple of years ago that I thought was excellent as well. What are some other movies or documentaries that you recommend people take in this Remembrance Day and maybe throughout the weekend? So in addition to your very good list, which included... Um, um, Apocalypse Now, Ultra. Platoon, The Deer Hunter, All's Quiet on the Western Front, and now Dunkirk is one that I added to that as well. That's good. Yeah, we should keep a one in list. I'm surprised I didn't mention 1970. Mm. And mm. I am also surprised I didn't mention Full Metal Target, if you're going to go with Vietnam films. Mm. I yeah. think Full Metal Target is a work of genius because it's divided into two. The first part of the film is always my favorite part, the, the part at uh, boot camp. And, you know, it just, it just shows the sheer, sheer loss of humanity that goes into the training of some of our recruits. And the fact that the recruits are not encouraged to, you know, to speak out against authority, even when they think the authority is doing something wrong or doing something improper. Um, I think I just really appreciated 1917 because that was just, you know, the camera was taking you into the battlefield and you couldn't escape. You couldn't get out of that. I am also very much touched by a film called Land of Mine, and that's a German film. And it's also a, a play on words because it's the story of the Germans in Denmark, where the German prisoner of war, um, prisoner of wars had to detonate mines, often with their own bodies. So I think it shows that, you know, we can, we can have war crimes happening on either side. There's not really necessarily a distinction between the bad guys and the good guys. They're just mm. teenagers, 20-year-olds, 20, 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds, just fighting and killing each other because they don't have anything else that they could be doing at the time. To paraphrase something that Homer uh, wrote in the Iliad, war is where old men talk and young men die. You could paraphrase that to be more modern, to say that war... That's the perfect distinction, because that's what we're saying in these films, especially in Dunkirk. If you remember those scenes with the old men talking in the dark, where all the young men are dying left and right, I think that's exactly what happened. Yeah, there's obviously a way you can modernize that statement to be more appropriate and inclusive to say that war is where old people talk and young people die. Michael, thank you for reflecting on some films about war on this Remembrance Day. We appreciate it. We're grateful. No, it is. It's important. And um, I, think, I think for us as Canadians, I think we need to get out there and start telling more stories. Even if you have a low budget, you can tell stories about your, your family, and you can tell stories about what it's like to be on a home front. That's well said. That's Michael McNeely with a discussion of The Forgotten Battle, which you can find on Netflix, and you can find Michael on Twitter, at Michael D. McNeely. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Ramya and Nizarine. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's keep talking about movies because the much-anticipated sequel to Black Panther is out today. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, actually dropped in theaters last night and some fairly positive reviews have already come in from folks who went to see it. I really liked the first one, but for, for whatever reason, I'm having trouble getting excited about the sequel. So let's talk to Nazreen Abdelmajid, Alex Smythe, and Grace Scofield a bit about their excitement level for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Good morning, Nazreen. Good morning. And hello again, Alex. Hey, Dave. Nazreen, you and I both talked about how much we've liked the first Black Panther movie. Yeah. Again, I'm having trouble getting psyched for this one. I don't know if it's maybe that Chadwick Boseman no longer going to be a part of the film after he passed away, or maybe I'm just a little marveled out. But what about you? What's your excitement level for Wakanda Forever? That's exactly how I'm feeling. I'm feeling that because of Chadwick. Uh, I, when things change, it I find it difficult for me to get excited about the same thing. So even when the characters change, uh, things like that for any TV show, any movie, it dies down for me. So for Black Panther, I'm still excited. However, it's still not as excited as I hoped I would be. So I don't know. We'll, I'm still hesitant. Yeah, the, the the buzz isn't there for sure. Also, I just mm-hmm. I just loved the character that Michael B. Jordan played in the yeah. last one. Like he was so charismatic on screen. So it almost made me think, like, can we maybe try and sneak Michael B. Jordan back into this? Will that get my excitement level a little bit more cranked up? Alex, what about you? I I don't know if you liked the first one. I don't know if you like superhero movies generally. But what's your uh, excitement level for Black Panther Two: Wakanda Forever? Come on, Dave. I'm a big nerd. Of course, I like comic book movies and comics and all that stuff. I, I I was a huge fan of the the first one. When it comes to this one, I I think it's really it's that fatigue that's gotten to me. I'm I'm excited, you know, for the film to do well. It, it had a really good trailer. It was really kind of uh, emotional. You know, you saw what they were going for with the tone, and it looked great. They're introducing Namor, uh, the Submariner, who's a huge uh, character from the comics tying in mutants for the first time in the mcu there's a lot of things to be excited about but i'm just kind of tired of the marvel mcu at this point which is you know tough for me to say because i love comic books uh movies and and all that in general but i think for me it's more seeing okay well what is the future of the mcu you know marvel releases these big slates of all these different movies that are going to be coming out and I, I really just don't care the direction they're taking. And the last movie I was excited for was Thor Love and Thunder, and it was kind of underwhelming, mm. unfortunately. So it's like, it's hard for me to have that excitement going forward with any of these other movies that are coming out, including this one. Now, I'm going to see it. I, I'm definitely going to catch it at some point, but I'll probably just wait for it to come out on Disney Plus uh, mm. down the road. I'll probably still see it in theaters, if I'm being honest. I, I like seeing these kind of movies in the theater. It's not the same watching them at home. Uh, Alex, your thought there may have actually stolen some thunder from our resident Marvel superfan, Grace Scofield. Grace, you and I were talking about this off air, and we're both just struggling to get up for any of these Marvel projects recently. Exactly. And I think there's so much uncertainty with where the storylines are going. And also the first Black Panther movie came in with such a splash. It was such a good movie. It's almost like for me, it's how can they live up to that, especially with the critiques and um, criticism that their past few movies have been kind of garnering. It's hard for me to see how this next movie is going to be as good or better than the first movie, especially without Chadwick Boseman in it. Um, And I think that there's a lot of 
kind of like, I don't really want to spend my money going to the theater to see this when there, I know there's going to be so many more Marvel movies coming out in the next little while. Mm. And maybe I want to just, you know, budget and spend it going to see one of those. Um, Cause I do think that, you know, there's a little bit of kind of, I, it, I'm tired. It's, it's a it, lot. It's, it's a lot of Marvel. It's oversaturation. It's one of these things that happens when stuff starts making money, when content starts making money. Studios and institutions are interested in oversaturating. I yes. used to be one of the biggest mixed martial arts fans on the planet. I could not get enough. My appetite was voracious. And then the UFC started doing 48 events a year. And then three other smaller promotions started doing 12 or 14 events a year. And I was like, you know what? You know how many I'm going to watch? Like two. I'm gonna it gets watch to be too. too much. It's too much. It's way too much. Uh, Grace, I'm, I'm like trying to do the math in my head here. I think this is like the fourth or fifth Marvel movie that's out this year, let alone the TV series that also dropped during the course of the year. The the She Hulk Attorney at Law and the Miss Marvel, which whatever they have, they have the folks who like them and the folks who don't like them. There, there's there's always going to be a bit of polarization. But yeah, I think they're just when you're talking about four to five movies a year, four five six movies a year, two three four five six like movie uh, a TV series a year. It's just a lot. Even if you love something, that's a lot. There's no anticipation anymore. There's no way to build up that that weight. When the Avengers movies first started coming out, you were waiting like a few years in between movies because they were such a big project to tackle. Now, with so many movies coming out, it's like, if I don't catch this one, I'll catch the next one. Yeah. And also, the development of the fan base on the internet has just, you know, you can go on a article and you can catch up on what you missed and you don't need to see the movies in theaters because mm -hmm. now it's become a I don't need to see this I'm gonna <laughs> see the clips on TikTok on Facebook on Instagram I'm gonna see them somewhere else right. and I'll be able to catch up if I miss this one and have to go see the next one so Alex said probably not in theaters I probably will go see it in theaters do you think you'll go see it in theaters I don't think so I think I'll wait Nazreen Abdelmajid you're the last word on this do you think you'll go see it in theaters I will. I like seeing these movies in theaters for sure. Yeah, I think I think Nazreen, you and I are a bit similar like that. We like going. Yeah. To, we like going to the movie theater. We we like like the experience of being at the movies. So there's, there's the something popcorn. about that. I love well, that too. That's always that's always <laughs> nice too. The twelve hundred percent markup on the popcorn goes a long way. Grace, Nazreen, Alex, thank you all for this. We appreciate it. Have a nice weekend, the three of you. You may have noticed there is no Ramya Amuthan in this conversation. That's okay. There's still an episode of Kelly and Company coming your way at 2 p.m. Eastern today. John Beeler will describe some new email and calendar features coming to Zoom. Sylvie Fiquette will talk about some travel guides available on Vancouver Island. And Ryan Huey reviews his recent meet and greet with seven-time Stanley Cup champion Brian Trottier at the Calgary Public Library. Following Ryan on social. This guy has been jet-setting all over the country, meeting powerful people and cool people, so it'll be interesting to hear about his rendezvous with Brian Trottier. That's Kelly and Company coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, Shelley Petit discusses new legislation in New Brunswick that ensures employees with disabilities receive the minimum wage. That's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. For years, employers in New Brunswick could pay employees with disabilities a sub-minimum wage, meaning that an individual could be paid as little as 30 cents per hour per their work. And it was legal. 
Well, now, thanks to the work of advocates, the government says laws in the Employment Standards Act will be changed. Joining me now to discuss this story is Shelley Petit, chair of the New Brunswick Coalition for Persons with a Disability. Shelley, thank you for making time for us today. We're grateful. Thank you for having me. It's greatly appreciated. Shelley, as I mentioned, this is the result of tireless work from advocates. What was your reaction when you heard that the government was going to be introducing these changes? We were happy, of course. We're pleased. But at the same time, there was this big celebration that was made around it. And we were like, should we really be celebrating or giving kudos to the government for doing what was right and what should have happened years ago? Mm. Why you do know, you... we just seem to be, we just seem to be, it's okay to walk all over us, they seem to think. Why do you think it took so long? To, to me, this seems like such a basic fundamental thing in terms of a human right for a person with a disability not to be paid a, 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 the bare minimum, the minimum wage. Why do you think this took so long to change? Again, in, in New, I don't know about the rest of Canada, I can only comment for New Brunswick, but in New Brunswick, Systemic ableism is rampant, and it starts at the very top of the government. We've been encouraging the government for years to, to lead by example and start even by hiring persons with disabilities to show that not only can we work, that we're great workers, and that we're great at thinking outside the box, and there's so many statistics to prove this, and we can't even get them to do that. They just want us to live in poverty and be quiet and go away. Well, we're not being quiet anymore, and I think that that is what has been partially involved with forcing the change. We we just, across the province, people are banding together and saying, no more. Shelley, you asked about other provinces. In Ontario, up until just a couple of years ago, it was also the case that there were yeah. certain conditions under the minimum wage that allowed people with disabilities not to be paid a minimum wage. And it was, to me, I found it stunning. It, it shocked me yeah. that, that, again, we're not, we're not talking about anything other than what is known as the minimum wage, what should wage. be considered the absolute baseline. And it just it struck me that, that, again, same thing in Ontario, that people sort of stood up and applauded and said, this is great, well done. It's like, guys, this is this is the basic fundamentals. So, yeah. Shelley, as we both agree, th this is just like a fundamental starting point. What else Absolutely. would you like to see changed in New Brunswick in regards to the employment landscape for people with disabilities? Well, one of the first ones, even in relationship to this, is that another reporter that interviewed me said, would you be surprised to know that I asked the Minister of Kettle, which is post-secondary training and labour, um, what is what is in place to ensure that those who are currently working are not just let go or that they don't use the internship position to hire persons with disabilities and then just let them go at the end of the internship period? And the answer was, there's nothing. We didn't think of that. So, you know, maybe talk to people with disabilities before you make these rules. Nothing about us without us doesn't seem to work with our government that well. What seems to happen is these announcements get made and then the actual pace of changing the law or changing the legislation ends up being a snail's pace. I'm sure if we looked at federal yeah. politics, uh, whether it be the Accessible Canada Act or the Canada Disability Benefit, we see that these things really snake their ways through the halls of parliaments. Is there any sense of what the timeline and the political support may be to get this passed swiftly and instituted swiftly in New Brunswick? Oh, I think this one will be passed swiftly. And I think the only reason it's happening now is because there's a dire shortage of employees. So they're like, well, hmm, what can we, oh, I know those folks with disabilities who have been telling us for years they can work and want to work. Let's hire some of them. 
that's the only reason this is happening. This is not a genuine making amends for things that are wrong. This is a, we're in a desperate situation. So what else can we do? It's, it's almost disheartening, isn't it? It is. It's very disheartening. Um, in a few years, if things go the other way, they'll find a reason not to hire us. They, you know, are accessible act in New Brunswick. We don't have it. It is just moving at snail's pace and makes the Canadian disability benefit look like it's moving like as fast as CERB did. That's how slowly it's working. There's no accessibility for our students on campus. It's okay to discriminate on campus. It's okay to refuse to give uh, notes and to have not have accessible dorms and not have accessible classrooms. Um, W5 just did a breakout. It's, it still seems to be just fine and dandy to use restraints and seclusion in New Brunswick on persons with disabilities. If there was not a dire need for employees, I don't know if this would be happening. Shelley, we know that that any kind of movement is difficult for a person with a disability, even especially if they're on any kind of government support or dealing with any kind of the poverty and other systemic biases that exist or even moving away from their support system. But when you talk about that snail's pace and a landscape that is so difficult for New Brunswickers with disabilities, I wonder if there's ever chatter about the fact that people with disabilities are looking for a way to migrate out of that province to somewhere else. Not to say there's really that many places in the country that are doing it well, but but I wonder if that becomes a genuine concern for people like yourself who are trying to build a critical mass of support and then being worried that whether it be young people or, or anybody is going to go somewhere else, whether it be in the Maritimes or elsewhere in the country. Uh, we see people leaving and going to places like Ontario, places that have accessibility acts because they feel safer and more secure. Uh, we lost five members last year just for that reason, uh, often around education or work, uh, because they just were not safe anymore here. They felt, you know, they couldn't get safe housing. Two-thirds of uh, housing that is supported we know has either radon or mold or both issues. So let's just add to the health issues. $826 is the max you can get if you're on the disability support plan. And only 30% of those who apply actually make it. Um, We do not have an accessibility act. It's just, you know, we are losing people and we're going to lose a brain drain again that we cannot afford and young people because we're not protecting 20, 26.7% of the population because that's where our numbers are. And it's certainly not because we have an abundance of doctors to diagnose us. Mm. Shelley, certainly this conversation started at least like a little teensy bit of hope, a little bit of a positive point, but that, but that came together with incredible work from you and your colleagues at the Mm. coalition. Where should people go to follow along with the work you're doing and maybe even offer in their support, their thoughts, their help to make sure we continue what may be small positive grains, but continue to put those grains together? Oh, yeah. Like, I know it's, it sounds negative, but we're making changes and we're going to keep making changes and we're not stopping. They can come join us at www.nbcpd. So C for coalition, P for persons, D disabilities.org. It's free to sign up. Uh, we'll keep you informed and we will bring you into activities. Shelley Petit is the chair of the New Brunswick Coalition for Persons with a Disability. Shelley, thank you for making time to be with us today. We're grateful. Anytime. Thank you so much. Again, that's Shelley Petit, the chair of the New Brunswick Coalition for Persons with a Disability, joining us from Fredericton, New Brunswick. 
That's all the time we have for the show today. That's all the time we have for the show this week. I want to thank you for making time to catch the second hour of the show via repeat or downloading it via podcast as the live broadcast currently showing the Remembrance Day ceremonies at the National War Memorial. And I do want to reiterate that we are thinking and remembering about those who have served in the past and present today and those who are continuing to make those sacrifices, their families, their friends. There are so many ways in which people are serving this country and continue to serve this country. And we want you to know we're thinking about you and we acknowledge you and we're grateful and we're thankful. Speaking of being thankful, there are a lot of people who work their tails off to put this show together every single week. We have our co-host and producer, Alex Smythe, our sports reporter, Brock Richardson, our senior show producer, Andrika Delanarol. You would not believe the number of fires that our TV technical producer, Bruce McLarian, has to put out on a day-to-day basis, including yesterday, which was just a wild, wild day. But Bruce does not do that work alone. He also gets help from folks like Daniel Penamondo and Eliza Rocco, Kingsley Juco, and of course, we had Grace Scofield stepping in today, filling in for Eliza. It was lovely to have Grace joining us. We have other producers behind the scenes, Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones, who do so much help in regards to getting the show together and getting us on our wheels every single day. And our media tech team, our IT department working behind the scenes as well, working their tails off as well. And got to give love to Paula Deneen and Karen Nye and even Andy Frank. Got to give Andy some love on a Friday too. We'll be back on Monday. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.